Hello all, and welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. I, as always, am your casual criminalist slash host slash fact boy, Simon. And uh, what happens here is Callum has put me together a script for today's episode. It's the Greyhound's bus beheading. I'm going to read it. I've never read it before. We're going on a journey of exploration together. And then afterwards, Jen, a wonderful, as the comment section on YouTube says, underloved video editor does so well you know big shout out to jen obviously she comes up less in the videos because i have you know callum script in front of me which i react to and i only see jen's version later so i can't go into the future and you understand how this works it's not that complicated the gray on bus beheading did i say the title of today's episode well done professional simon this is uh it's yeah it's all about this so uh, the Greyhound bus beheading I have stories about Greyhound buses. I have ridden the Greyhound bus in the United States many, many times because when I turned 21, me and my uh, uh, a friend from school and university, actually, we went to both together and we were like, we're 21, let's go to America because they finally deemed it safe for us to drink, even though we'd been doing it for many years in the UK. We go to America and the idea was that we'd rent a car and we'd drive across the entire United States. Except then we found out that as 21 year old dudes renting a car and just taking on a cross-country road trip is enormously expensive. So we were like, yeah, how bad can the Greyhound bus be? Turns out, extremely bad. I met many dodgy people. It was a horrible experience that I will never do again. Uh, because now I'm older and can afford to rent a car. Like, you know, it was... The grey. I understand why the Greyhound exists. It's a cheap way to travel. It is also horrible. <laughs> Let's get into it. Public transport can be hit or miss. In the case of the Greyhound, a big miss, especially if you're getting beheaded. The body odor of dozens of people trapped in a metal tube, psychotic seatmates telling you their life story while blinking once or twice max. 12-year-old chavs blasting music from their phones at the back. It only takes one of these things to turn an otherwise pleasant journey into a living hell. I'm not sure what the American equivalent of a chav would be. Uh, Callum's also British. I am British. Um, maybe, I don't know if it's white trash. I don't really know what that means. It's, uh, I don't know, complicated and probably no longer politically correct, Callum. But I guarantee you, no matter how bad your worst public transport experience was, it's nothing. Oh, I'll tell you who they are. They're the people who play the music on their phone out loud in a quiet public setting that's who. It's nothing compared to what some Canadian passenger had to endure back in 2008. That was the year that I did my great- I'm not even joking. That summer was the month where I spent traveling across America on the Greyhounds. Not even joking. Pre- 2008. Yeah, it was the year I graduated university. These unlucky souls were witness to the infamous Greyhound bus beheading. Just to clarify, Greyhound is the name of the bus company. Today's episode is not about the public murder of a beloved family. <laughs> Callum, no. No one thought that. Although while no animals were harmed in the making of this episode, how, how do you know? I'm harming animals right now. There's a duck that I'm torturing with my feet under the tech. Not really, Peter. Peter? Peter? How do you say that word? The, the, the crazy rights, animal rights people. One human definitely was, in perhaps the worst way imaginable. Oh, God. <laughs> what is up with you today? The Siege of Bus 1170. 
At 8.30 p.m. on the 30th of July 2008, a call came in to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Station in Portage-la-Prairie, uh, sorry, French Canadians, Manitoba. A report of a stabbing on an intercity bus out on the Trans-Canada Highway just west of town. It was nearing sunset as Corporal Ken Barker and his colleagues turned on the sirens and made the short drive to the scene. Fortunately, on that American road trip, I didn't go to Canada, so this was a whole country away. Really, really far away <laughs> in neighboring Canada. These first responders pulled up to find Greyhound Bus 1170 pa- parked by the side of the road and its 30-odd passengers standing outside on the grass. The crowd were distraught. Some of them were bawling their eyes out, others throwing up on the floor, and three of them, men armed with a crowbar and hammers, were pushing their weight against the bus door like their lives depended on it. Because actually, their lives depended on it. This was thanks to the blood-splattered individual currently pacing up and down the island side with a long hunting knife in his hand. Nobody knew who this hulking figure was, only that he had boarded the bus in Ericsson earlier that evening, and none of them had paid him much attention. But from that day forward, they would struggle to forget his face for the rest of their lives. I met some dodgy people on the Greyhounds, but none of them quite like this. But also, also you can imagine, maybe not that far off. There was one story, and I know this is too many personal stories, Simon. Just get to the true crime facts, fact boy. But there was one. I was in some bus stop in, like, it was somewhere in the south. And I'm vending with my friend. We're standing at a machine that vends hot dogs. Don't know why it vends hot dogs. Apparently, that's a thing. And I'm talking to my friends, and I'm like, dude, this looks pretty rough. But this is literally what we have to eat. And there's a dude behind us who says, like, something along the lines of, it's better than what I've been eating for the past four years. And we didn't really put it together. And then we realized, oh, he just got out of prison. He was in prison for four years. And apparently, when you leave prison, you get a bus ticket to go where you want to go to. So, uh, yeah. I mean, let's get back to this story about the, the man with a knife on the bus is way more interesting than my stories. But, you know, because they're my stories, I feel, you know, they're more interesting to me. But that doesn't mean they're more interesting to you. But let's move on. Behind the tinted windows, the same face stared out with emotionless eyes as the Mounties approached from their squad car. The cops asked a bystander where they could find the driver, and they pointed over towards the trio at the door. He was the big guy with a hammer in his hand. The driver explained what was going on. Just a short while ago, out of nowhere, this budget Rambo chap on board flipped a switch and started stabbing his sleeping seatmate in an unprovoked ambush. Nobody knew why, the men seemed like perfect strangers up to that point. Meanwhile, all of these terrified people on the roadside had fled the bus on the instructions of the driver, who then engaged the emergency immobilizer to stop the killer from fleeing the scene. Bus 1170 was then his de facto holding cell while they waited for the cops to come and take over. That I, I understand this is fantastic news and it's wonderful that they managed to seal him on the bus, but that does seem like a bit of a fire hazard, doesn't it? Like one crazy person be like, hold up the bus, lock the bus, so no one can escape, and then set it on fire? I mean, I don't want to give the terrorists ideas, but I guess that one's for free. Highway to Hell The Mounties cordoned off the area around the vehicle and called in assistance from special negotiators and a tactical team. The suspect showed no signs of backing down, so a standoff ensued. Meanwhile, the passengers were herded a safe distance away, then driven to a local police station. Officers there interviewed them one by one to find out how the hell their pleasant, uneventful bus journey descended into this slasher film nightmare. Callum's obviously never been on a Greyhound bus because he describes the journey as pleasant. 
The story began almost 24 hours ago. At 12.01 a.m. that morning, the bus stopped off in Alberta, making its way east towards Winnipeg. There, a young guy called Tim McLean hopped on board, returning home after working a carnival gig in Alberta. Waiting for him back at home were his mother and father and his girlfriend, who was about four months pregnant with their first son. His friends and family described him as a sociable, athletic guy with the love of meeting new people. The 22-year-old sat near the back of the bus, one row ahead of the bathroom, and slept as best he could through the night. After many miles without incidents, the bus pulled over in Ericsson, Manitoba, at about 6 p.m. on the same day. It was there that our amateur executioner boarded, a tall, strongly built man who seemed a bit distracted, fidgety, and irate as he stepped on board. He would later be identified as 40-year-old Vince Lee, a resident of Edmonton. The newcomer sat down near the front of the bus, and they took off for their final leg of the journey. About 50 minutes later, the bus pulled into a roadside services for a rest break, and Vince Lee stepped off for a cigarette. The passengers were given half an hour to stretch their legs and grab some food, but an exhausted McLean chose to stay on board and rest. Then, for some reason, when Vince Lee got back on board, he decided to switch out his old seat for the vacant spot next to the young Carney. As the bus engines fired up again, with Zorro playing on the video screen up front, the younger man nodded and smiled to his new neighbor before putting on his headphones and leaning against the window to sleep. No insults, no provocations, only the most basic common courtesy between strangers, but regardless, something in Vince Lee was about to snap. Around an hour later, the quiet was broken by a blood-curdling scream. The passengers turned all at once to see where it was coming from. One of them, Garnet Canton, got a horrific front row view of the carnage unfolding. I turned around and the guy sitting right behind me was standing up and stabbing another guy with a big Rambo knife right in the throat, repeatedly. In total shock, Tim McLean tried to push his attacker away as the knife was driven into his neck and chest over and over, but blood was pouring from the wounds and the strength was draining from him. Tim was powerless to escape. Seconds after the attack began, the driver screeched the bus to a halt and flung the door open. The rest of the passengers piled forward, screaming, tumbling onto the roadside. They could only watch through the window as Lee continued stabbing his dying victim almost 60 times in total. The most chilling part was that the killer didn't even seem angry. In fact, he didn't show any emotion at all. Catton added, there was no rage or anything. It was like a robot stabbing the guy. The murder was as mechanical as it was brutal. It was then that a passing truck driver called Chris Algier, noticing the panicking crowd gathered on the roadside, stopped to see what all the commotion was about. He provided the weaponry for a daring rescue mission, even though that window of opportunity passed about four dozen stabbings ago. But, well, full marks of bravery, guys. Yeah, that guy who pulls over in the truck and is like, there's a guy being stabbed on that bus. He's like, let's go inside and fuck his day up. I'm like, legends. <laughs> He grabs the hammers and crowbar from his truck cab, passed one to the driver and another to a passenger. Together, they opened the door to the bus and shouted to Lee to drop the knife and sit down. The killer was still in a world of his own, looming over the lifeless, mutilated body of his victim. As the three men started approaching, Lee's head snapped up. He charged down the aisle at the three would-be rescuers, slashing wildly with his massive blade. Judging by the state of the body, the risk-reward ratio was near rock bottom, so rather than engaging Vince in a medieval-style duel, the three musketeers leapt back down the steps, hauled the door shut, and threw their weight against it, just as the murderer crashed into the other side. He started slashing and stabbing at the glass just inches from their head. Eventually, Vince Lee tired himself out and returned to his main objective, the body at the back of the bus. Dude, what is your objective, you psycho? <laughs> what is it? Yeah, you're just standing in it, stabbing an Issa bystander. Standard. The murder's done. And it's like, yeah, now what's your... I know he's going to behead him because that's the title of the bloody episode. But it's like, your objective is like to behead a dude? What is actually wrong with you? 
With his expression as straight as ever, Lee continued slashing at the body just out of view of the passengers gathered below. Seconds later, he leaned over towards the window and raised his hand in the air. The victim's severed head hung from his fist by the hair, staring out with frozen, terror-stricken eyes. So now you understand where all that crying and vomiting came from earlier. Callum, we understood it when we saw the title of the episode. This robotic killer was not only mutilating the corpse, but making a show for the traumatized crowd gathered below, like some sort of deranged Roman gladiator. The witness Catton added, I got sick after I saw the head thing. Some people were puking, some people were crying, some people were shocked. He just looked at us and dropped the head on the ground, totally calm. Are you not entertained? <laughs> oh my god. A grisly sight. That was the situation when the armed policemen arrived on the scene surrounding the bus. After dropping the head, Lee had returned to the dismembered body and continued cutting away pieces of it as he pleased. Several witnesses, those who had the stomach to look, even reported seeing him consume pieces of the flesh from the victim. Ah, uh, I guess you guys are probably formulating some thoughts in your mind already. I certainly am. Right now, and I know I often say this in Casual Criminals, but isn't he? He's just crazy, right? There's no motivation. He's not some hitman on some sort of crazy job. He's not a serial killer. Or maybe he's killed before. Maybe he is a serial killer. Nah, a serial killer wouldn't be like this. A serial killer would be more methodical and try not to get caught, unless this is his final victim or something, which I don't think it is. Like, he's. I think this guy's just absolutely lost his mind. Just totally lost his mind. The, the script is quite thick, so maybe there's a better explanation. But uh, that's, that's, that's where my mind's at right now. Negotiators tried communicating with the suspect, but bus cannibals aren't always the easiest people to reason with. Believe me, I've tried. <laughs> so for the most part, Lee just ignored them. He spent the following hours either pacing up and down the bus or busying himself by cutting away at the corpse in a horrible display of overkill. At one point, officers from the RCMP heard Vince Lee saying, I have to stay on the bus forever, but his convictions waned around the four-hour mark. At 1.30am, Vince Lee decided to take his chances outside. Mate, your chances are not good. <laughs> You've just beheaded someone on a bus and the police have arrived. You're trapped on the bus. You're going to exit the bus. They're going to arrest you or shoot you. I mean, I also don't understand. He's not got hostages on the bus. Surely the potential outcomes are he kills himself with a knife or some other way on the bus. Or you go onto the bus and attempt to arrest him, or he leaves the bus and you attempt to arrest him. It feels like it would be easier to try and arrest him while he's on the bus. I mean, it seems like that's the it's it's more contained that way. I don't know, if I were the police, I'd feel like going in would be the right decision. He noticed the emergency exit signs at the back window and struck the pane with his knife, sending glass shattering outwards. Why didn't he do that at the beginning before the police arrived? He then tossed the knife and a pair of Oh wait, no, because he had to head he had to cut the guy's head off. That was his psycho mission. He then tossed his knife and a pair of scissors, safety first, before jumping out himself. Just after he landed, officers rushed in and tasered the blood-stained cannibal. It took two charges to bring him to the ground. Then they kept on top of him and twisted his arm behind his back into handcuffs, and the ordeal was finally over. Or so they thought, but the scene that awaited the police on board the bus would impact them so much more, the mental images from that day would never fully leave them. Yeah, seeing someone get their head chopped off is an image that does not leave you. That is, that's not going away. There's no therapy that can get rid of that image in your mind. There are no drugs. Forever. Corporal Barker pressed the emergency unlock and was the first one to step on board since the suspect spent those long hours butchering the body. He met with the hellish scene. Pieces of flesh lie scattered over the seats and floor, and the remains on the seat at the back 
barely even resembled a human anymore. Lee had cut the innards out of the body and left dozens of puncture wounds in the torso. As the cops approached what was left of the young man, the blood-soaked carpet squelched underfoot. Lying in the center of the aisle was the head. The bulk of it anyway, it appeared that Vince Lee had actually cut away almost all of the facial features. Curiously, these were nowhere to be found among the grisly aftermath on bus 1170. An eagle-eyed investigator would have noticed that the nose, tongue, eyes, and ear were completely missing. The job of recovering those fell to five unlucky, unresting officers who were about to search Mr. Lee. Dude, you're, like, you're mentally unwell. What, what are you doing? Well, I had to chop his head off and steal his nose. Okay. <laughs> you psycho. Pressing him face first into the hood of the police cruiser, the cops patted the suspect down and felt a soft lump inside his pocket. Incidentally, that's also the first line to my debut adult film script, but the two stories diverge pretty considerably from there. Callum, you are on the, I don't want to say point because it's so grim, but the dark humor today is, is next level. Wrapped up in a plastic bag in his right pocket was a limp, wet mass, a human tongue. Beneath it were the missing ear and nose. Have a look at your checklist and you'll find the eyes were still missing. The leading theory is that Lee actually ate those after cutting them out. The post-mortem also revealed that a part of the heart was also missing, meaning it was most likely eaten by the cannibalistic passenger too. If this non-stop horror show of an episode is getting a bit too much for you, believe me, some news articles were close to the limit for me. This is, I, I mean, we've done some fairly gruesome stuff here on The Casual Criminalist. Almost forgot the name of my show there for a second. But like, the cannibal stuff is like, I mean, it really turns the stomach, doesn't it? You'll be happy to hear that the worst part is over. Okay, very nice. Now it's time to try and make sense of the whole bloody affair. What motivates a man to launch such a vicious attack on a stranger and then eat pieces of him afterwards? Before you go placing all your bets on bath salts, I'll cross that one off the list. It wasn't drugs, in fact. The answer is more tragically familiar than that. Okay, yeah, I mean, like, I guess some sort of crazy bad trip on, like... I don't know what drugs make you do that. I, d I don't want to say meth, because that's not a hallucinogen, is it? I feel like there are some crazy drugs that the CIA was probably using on people in the 60s that, uh, that could make this happen. The Voice of God it was the kind of crime that completely defied explanation until investigators found out a bit more about who their cannibalistic culprit was. Before Vince Lee was trapping innocents inside a zombie nightmare, he was just a normal man, living a normal life. Born in China in 1968 as Wei Guan Li, he studied computer science at the Wuhan Institute of Technology before working as a software developer in Beijing. He emigrated to Canada in the summer of 2001 and soon fell into a trap that a lot of immigrants find themselves in chronic underemployment. Lee first worked as a cleaner and a handyman at the Great Memorial Church in Winnipeg while trying to get himself and his wife up on their feet. The pastor there said that he was a quiet, committed employee, but that he would originally feel frustrated with not being able to communicate or understand. So am I trying to say that he murdered and dismembered a young man because he was frustrated with his career prospects? No, no, have some patience, we're getting to that. Around the same time, something started happening to Mr. Lee that changed his life forever. What could turn this like seemingly regular immigrant dude looking for a job into this level of cray-cray? While he spent his days sweeping the aisles of the church, he started to get closer to God, but in a more direct sense than usual. Ah, yes, I, I don't know who's, who says it. There's that famous quote like, if you're talking to God, A-OK. -okay. If God's talking to you, not okay. 
In 2004, Lee began hearing the actual voice of the Almighty as he went about his day. Tell you what, not the actual voice of the Almighty. Sometimes he would give him bizarre orders, sometimes deal out terrible threats. Apparently, Yahweh and his angels are big conspiracy theory fans because they seemed extremely preoccupied with the threat of an alien invasion on Earth. Now, even the most amateur psychologist can give a pretty reliable diagnosis from that information alone. Schizophrenia. Vince Lee had always had some mental health problems bubbling away in the background, but this is when the issues rose up to the surface, manifesting themselves as full-blown, undiagnosed schizophrenia. According to his wife, he would disappear for days on end without any idea of where he was going. In 2004, he was found wandering along the side of a busy highway by police in Ontario. He explained that God had told him to follow the sun, which is a surefire way to win yourself a trip to the mental health ward. But unfortunately, his stay was brief and his diagnosis was non-existent. Ah, yes, the common thread of mental health services, failing people with mental health problems, leading to bad outcomes. It's, uh, it's almost as reliable as, oh, the criminal? They, they had an abusive childhood? Shocking. Lee ended up quitting his church job in the spring of 2005 and went on to work other manual labor roles while his wife worked as a waitress in a restaurant. After getting their Canadian citizenship in 2006, Lee moved to Edmonton, leaving his wife behind until he could get established there. Still hampered by language problems and social stigma, he struggled to get a job befitting his qualifications. Over the next two years, he worked as a newspaper delivery man, fast food server, and later at a Walmart in town. In July 2008, he had been fired from Walmart on account of a disagreement with his colleagues. Disagreements in uh, inverted commas. Inverted commas? Inverted, inverted commas? Speech marks? I'm so dumb, what are those things called? And asked for time off from his delivery job so that he could travel back to Winnipeg for a job interview. But whenever I read Winnipeg, I always think of Winterpeg because I knew a guy from Winnipeg and he was like, yeah, yeah, it's really cold there. People call it Winterpeg and we hate that. And all I all I wanted to do was just call it Winterpeg the whole time. Because apparently I'm a d- But as far as I can make out, there was probably no job interview at all. Lee was on a very different kind of mission. In his own words, The voice told me that I was the third story of the Bible, that I was like the second coming of Jesus, and that I was to save people from a space alien attack. And just like that, the gospel according to Vince was about to enter its dramatic final act. By this point, Mr. Lee's schizophrenia had clearly taken a major hold of his perceptions of reality, and his psychotic episodes were becoming increasingly severe, although nobody noticed anything particularly unusual in the months leading up. That was until his wife awoke on the morning of July the 29th to a note on the kitchen counter. I'm gone. Don't look for me. I wish you were happy. Vincent hopped on a bus out of Edmonton in the dead of night, and judging by the note, his mind wasn't in a very good place. He pulled up to Erickson, Manitoba at about 6 p.m. In one of his bags was the hunting knife, which he bought earlier for protection from any extraterrestrial threats. <laughs> so what are we going to do? The aliens are coming. You know what we should use on them? Knives. The E.T. bounty hunter needed some cash to fund his mission from God, so he wrote the words laptop for sale, $600 or best offer, on a piece of cardboard, propped it up against a bench next to a grocery store, and settled down for the rest of the night. Witnesses reported that he left quite a worrying impression as he sat there through the small hours, straight-backed and spaced out. He was there as late as 3 a.m. that night. It appears as if he simply spent the entire night sitting bolt upright, barely moving a muscle. That guy, the guy at 3am in a parking lot sitting bolt upright with a scrawled sign saying, laptop for sale, $600. That's where I buy my laptops. In the morning, a teenager happened upon him sitting there and decided to try his luck with a laptop. He offered just 10% of the asking price and was amazed when Lee accepted. Either he was desperate or he didn't expect to need much money for whatever life he had left. Because the voices in his head were clear, if he was unable to follow God's instructions, the punishment would be a swift 
and painful death. Lee stayed on that same bench the rest of the day. When bus 1170 to Winnipeg pulled up at around 6 p.m. that evening, he was stressed, sleep-deprived, and on the brink of an explosive mental episode, the likes of which had never suffered before. As we saw before, he settled down in a seat near the front of the bus, with the voices getting louder and louder as they rolled down the highway. Vince Lee tried to relieve the tension in his head with a cigarette when the bus stopped in Brandon, but it didn't do much good. Warnings about the aliens were still bounding around in his head, and the voices grew ever more aggressive. They demanded he take action. When it was time to step back on bus 1170, Vince caught sight of Tim sitting near the back, looking out the window. The voice of God boomed in his head. This was one of the enemies sitting right there on the bus all along. Following the instructions from the voices, he took a seat next to the carnival worker as the bus began to move again. For the next hour, God and all his angels wouldn't let him rest. He had been chosen to purge the aliens from Earth, and they weren't about to let him slack off now. Not now that he had one of the enemies of Christ cornered. Frustrated with his inaction, God eventually gave Vince an ultimatum. Kill his fellow passenger or die immediately. You're well aware of what happened next, so I don't think we need to revisit that again. Thank you, Callum. No, we don't need that. The only thing we really need to add is that Mr. Lee's own account of what was going through his head at the time, which was explained in a 2012 interview. I was really scared. I remember cutting off his head. I believed he was an alien. The voices told me to kill him, that he would kill me or others. To hear him tell it, in those fateful moments he truly believed he was doing a service to humanity. Meanwhile, humanity looked on from outside the bus, collectively saying, What the fuck, mate? Please stop. But the damage was done. A controversial conclusion. So now you have both sides of the story a horrible, brutal murder and the terrible, vicious illness that precipitated it. Now, this is where it gets complicated. Sure, Vince Lee might have committed one of the most awful crimes imaginable full on Mexican cartel tier violence, but how can he be blamed for his actions if he was genuinely inhabiting an alternate reality within his own mind? That's one of the most difficult questions any court will ever have to answer, and in this case, it was a particularly touchy topic. Yeah, I mean, to me, at least, he's not guilty of murder. Ah, uh, he is. He didn't intend to kill that person. He intended to kill the non-existent alien, and you know he needs to be in confined to a mental health institution until. <sighs> okay, yeah, this is why it's complicated. Until he's fixed. So, assuming they can fix him and they give him some, even if there exists said magic wonder drug that cures him of his condition or keeps it at bay or whatever, and he's given that, and then he's perfectly fine, and he's back to like Mister Lee from before. Can he go free? I think probably yes. Morally, yes. And I always do this thing where I'm like trying to think if it was one of my loved ones who was murdered by this guy in this brutal way, would I be okay with it? And it's why the death penalty is complicated for me, at least, because I. <laughs> I know, it makes me seem so spiteful. But it's like if someone who I loved was murdered by someone, I'd kind of want them to die. And I don't know if I actually would in the moment, because fortunately I've never been in that situation. But it does make me take pause and not just immediately answer, no, I'm against the death penalty. And this is the this is a sort of similar thing. If someone that I love was murdered by this guy, would I want him in prison? And I think it's an easier call than the death penalty one. I'm like, no, not if he's treated. Not if he's treated him well. Because this isn't some case where he's like, maybe he's mentally ill, maybe, uh, maybe he's just a psycho and i mean in this case he's clearly very mentally ill 
During his first court hearing, an exhausted Vince uh, Wei Guang Li appeared before the judge to hear the specifics of the crime read out in excruciating detail. He was charged with murder in the second degree, and nobody, not even the man himself, denied that he was guilty of the killing. But was he criminally culpable? Leone had a few words to say on the matter. He just sat staring at the floor with his fist clenched, rocking from side to side. When asked by the judge, he declined his right to a lawyer. Then the mandatory public defender assigned to him at the time heard him mutter a simpler request. I'm sorry. I'm guilty. Please kill me. But this was Canada, not some barbaric place like I don't know, Texas. So the death penalty wasn't on the cards. Rigorous psychological examination was the order of the day to determine whether or not Lee was even fit to stand trial. At that point, Lee could still hear the voice of God speaking to him, and he believed that the Almighty would strike him down any day for failing to escape. Caught between the real world and his delusions, he was able to accept the terrible thing he did, but not able to accept the fantasies that drove him to do it. When the trial began in earnest in March of 2009, it fell to Judge John Skerfeld to pass judgment on Mr. Lee's plea, not criminally responsible on account of a mental disorder. Following the advice of the psychiatrist, the criminal proceedings were ceased, and Vince Lee was committed to Selkirk Mental Health Center for treatment. Now, this is where it gets quite controversial. During his time at Selkirk, Vince Lee was a model patient. He accepted what he did wholeheartedly, showed complete remorse, and complied with his treatment at every step. By the mid-2010s, his delusions were more or less conquered. So the question arose, what to do next? He had already been enjoying periodic trips off-site to the city and the beach, accompanied by a nurse and a minder. But every time his psychiatrists granted Lee more privileges, certain parts of the Canadian press responded with outrage. Vicious cannibal given state-funded trips to the seaside. It's the sort of headline that makes my granddad's blood boil. Yeah, I can't blame your granddad on... Oh wait, boil because he's outraged at the fact that this guy is getting trips to the beach? Or is his blood boiling because he's like, the news media is like so sensationalized? Uh, I, I don't agree with the first one, but I do agree with the latter one. So imagine the outcry when in 2016, Vince Lee was judged to not prove any threat to the community and was granted permission to live in his own apartment in Winnipeg. Grandads across Canada sharpened their pitchforks at the news. Okay, yeah, I don't agree with your granddad, Callum. <laughs> Old oh, people are gonna old people though, aren't they? For safety's sake, Vince that's not an excuse, old people. Get your shit together. For safety's sake, Vince Lee changed his name to Will Baker and accepted the state's offer of supervised release on the condition that he stick to his medication schedule religiously. Yes. The, this of all the religious shit you've been up to, Lee, sticking to that schedule religious I mean, yes, if you skip it, back to hospital. Less than one year later, his full release was finalized. In February of 2017, the review board released a statement saying, The weight of evidence does not substantiate that Mr. Baker possesses a significant threat to the safety of the public. That meant that less than nine years after the incident, he was released back into the world with no supervision, his full freedom restored. And I don't know whether this is supposed to be shocking or bad, but I think this is ju justice done. That feels fair. He had a mental condition. It's been cured. He's been an upstanding citizen, uh, upstanding uh, patient or whatever. He deserves to re-enter society. This is all just my opinion, of course. It's obviously, I'm not stating fact. It, that seems fair to me. I think. Maybe I'm just in a super generous mood today. The Fallout Tim McLean's mother, Carol Dadelli, was disgusted and distraught. She reacted to the news through Facebook, saying that the family had no words for what they considered a severe injustice. Her main criticism was that if Baker forgets to take his medication one day, his relapse could mean another tragedy like that. She now had full custody of her grandson, born five months after the incident, and felt the pain of watching him grow up having 
never got to meet his father. Her priority was that something like that shouldn't be allowed to happen to anyone else, no matter the cost to the culprit. However, Chris Somerville of the Manitoba Schizophrenia Society says of people in Baker's situation, they want to stay in the shadows because they realize what they did was horrible and wrong. Once the medications take effect and they come to realize what they did, they go into horrible despondency and despair. He argues that recidivism rates for psychiatric patients are about a seventh of those of prison populations. Which is still... I mean, it depends how badly you recidivize, if that is even a word. But like, if he recidivizes like this, even a one in seven of a one in however many for the prison population, which I know is high, it still feels high. There should be more done to make sure this guy is taking his drugs somehow, because he really needs to take his drugs. So where do the lines really lie on this? Culpability, rehabilitation, punishment, deep cover, Martian spies? Is it a system that allows killers to avoid criminal responsibility on the grounds of mental delusions alone, too soft-handed, or simply working as a more enlightened, more intelligent criminal justice system should? That's far too big a question for me today. <laughs> a question which Simon attempted to answer off the cuff for no reason. I'm a simple scriptwriter bringing terrible, depressing facts to the masses for your consideration. <laughs> well, thank you, Callum. <laughs> and now I feel I have to apologize for trying to figure out like, whether this is an enlightened justice system in about five minutes. Wrap up. So there you have it. A rather somber end to one of the bloodiest, most shocking crime stories we've come across so far. A story in which there are no winners, few consolations, and no convictions. Pretty surprising given the way that it started. If you happen to be listening to this episode on public transport, or God forbid, a greyhound bus, I hope you got as far away from your fellow passengers as possible by now, especially if you happen to be a shape-shifting demon. Or you can try a tactic. I remember when I was riding the greyhound bus, it was actually someone who worked for the greyhound company. The bus was full, and it wasn't actually me, it was my mate who I was traveling with. He gets onto the bus, I take a seat right at the front because that's the only one that's left next to someone. And there's one other seat opposite side of the aisle behind the driver where a woman wearing like a greyhound jacket is sitting. I assume like the driver they rotate with you because it's a long drive or whatever. There's no one sitting next to her. There's just a small bag on the seat. And my friend asks, uh, excuse me, is there anyone sitting there? Can I sit there? And the woman's like, my bag's sitting there. And it's like, oh, shit. <laughs> And so we have to get on the get off the bus and just wait for another one because the woman who works for the bloody company didn't want to get like let my friend. It was so bizarre. God damn greyhounds, such a piece of sh company allegedly. Of course, those extraterrestrial creatures probably don't exist. But as far as Vince Lee was concerned on that day, they were a very real, very dangerous threat. Tragically, that belief turned him into the real monster in the eyes of everyone who witnessed the events of that day. If the psychiatrists have confirmed he's genuinely cured and he genuinely possesses no threat to society, then you really have to wish him all the best in coming to terms with his crime and living a good life. But that's little consolation for the mother who lost her son or the dozens who were deeply affected by the crime for years after i would say wait it's little consolation i would i mean i don't because i can't possibly put myself in her position but i can say that it is some consolation that it isn't some murderous serial killing psychopath who killed her son in cold blood and ate his flesh rather than a, i would it's it feels that it's somewhat better that it was a guy who just had a mental breakdown and lost his and thought he was killing an alien. I mean, that just seems easier to handle rather than knowing that there's true evil who killed her son. I don't know, like I say, I can't put myself in her shoes. Tragically, Corporal Ken Barker, the first man on the bus after the accident, took his life in 2014 as a result of PTSD. That is 
tragic and that is another failing of mental care it bears repeating that although it's good to take a lighter look at the dark side of life these illnesses are no joke we'll drop a few resources below uh, uh, as this is a podcast i know some people listen and you don't always get links i'll uh, read them out if i can or maybe provide like an easy googleable phrase perhaps uh we'll drop some more resources below that explain how to recognize the signs and symptoms in closing remember although public transport is greener and cheaper you have a far lower chance of being stabbed in the comfort of your own car probably worth keeping that in mind okay so the resources um this is from helpguide.org it's a long url so i just say if you search helpguide.org and then schizophrenia signs and symptoms you're almost guaranteed to find that page and then there's a uk resource mind.org.uk which i know is a good charity uh, mind.org.uk and then types of mental health problems post-traumatic stress disorder ptsd if you google that you'll definitely find that link as well so callum says here both the guides on recognizing the symptoms in friends and loved ones which uh, lead on to other articles about avenues of treatments fantastic dismembered appendices number one shortly after the incident greyhound canada scrambled to pull one of their latest ad campaigns from circulation why well the chirpy tagline was there's a reason you've never heard of bus rage oh my god but of course by this point the bloody greyhound beheading was front page news so all of their target audience had in fact heard of bus rage and that it was pretty damn brutal in terms of rage i never really the air rage is a thing right where people lose their shit on planes and i never understood it like a you know flown so many times and you're like ah oh, i don't understand it's like you just sit there yeah it's boring and you know if you're flying like ryanair or something it's horrible but uh you know in general i just didn't get rage like where does rage come from and then i i can't remember where it was it was maybe on google or something you know just reading an article and people were like you ever get angry at your computer and i'm like oh and i just immediately got it you know i, I don't know if this is just me but it's like i've i've destroyed at least one keyboard where your computer's just you know what's going on what's going on oh you just slam the keyboard it's like oh god three buttons now don't work i guess i gotta go to the electronics store this morning i don't feel like i have a terrible rage problem it's happened once i say at least one keyboard is probably one keyboard and one mouse over the years and i use my computer a lot but uh someone was like yeah that rage of the computer that's what people who have air rage feel and i'm like totally get it thank you for the explanation number two i know you're all literally for me to wrap up one of the most compelling loose ends here what happened to the laptop <laughs> well either well after the news broke the 15 year old turned it into the authorities as evidence an anonymous local businessman decided to gift him a brand new replacement as a reward for his honesty i'm not sure he really deserves a reward for low-balling a mentally ill man out of his possessions <laughs> but i guess the bar must be quite low these days number three in the aftermath of the killing petter or peter wherever you pronounce it no one cares allegedly unsuccessfully tried to run an ad in the portage daily graphic drawing parallels between the killing and slaughterhouse practices don't do that better peter it's that that's not right that just that means some pr genius switched on the news saw the tragedy and their first thought was just like the chickens you can still find a copy on their website's blog if you're interested <laughs> no let's no one not no no this has been an episode of the casual criminalist thank you for watching or listening or however you consume this show if you want to be an absolute legend smash that like button make sure you're subscribed if you're listening as a podcast leave me a review if you can spotify still haven't added reviews get on it spotify come on why don't you listen listen to me you know big deal podcast here not really it's, it's quite small but reviews would be nice leave me a review at apple podcast or wherever right get your show that would be awesome thank you for watching thank you to callum thank you to jen and i'll uh, see you next time